0: to Descent Magazine's Belabored podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen.
1: Hey Sarah. Hi Michelle. And welcome to Belabored episode 173. In this edition we are talking to academic and games enthusiast Jamie Woodcock about work, play, marks, games, and the labor of games. But first, the news. Over the past year, the Me Too movement has made a lot of noise in Hollywood, launched pitched legal and political battles in high-profile corporate scandals, and unleashed major public backlash against powerful elite men in the worlds of entertainment and corporate America. But beyond amplifying the issue in the media and in our popular culture, has the movement really worked in calling attention to issues of sexual abuse and violence, gender discrimination, and women's rights at work? A new bill introduced this week in Congress aims to change the conversation on gender justice in workplaces nationwide by giving survivors a legal platform to raise their voices against their bosses. The act is appropriately titled Be Heard and would address many of the barriers to reporting and filing complaints about workplace harassment and discrimination. Primarily, it would dismantle one of the biggest tools that bosses use to silence their victims. The non-disclosure agreements and forced arbitration clauses that are written into contracts as a virtual gag order for workers who suffer abuse in the job. It would also expand workers' access to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission process for filing a claim of harassment or discrimination under the Civil Rights Act. It would create a legal aid grant program to assist low-income workers who seek to bring claims under the EEOC process and currently only about 19% of employment related legal disputes receive some kind of financial assistance so this bill would really help bring more low income women into the system the bill would also end the tipped minimum wage which is a big drain on earnings of service workers which deters many from reporting abuse and harassment Importantly, these protections would go beyond the scope of many existing federal labor regulations by extending legal protections to workers at small and informal workplaces. That would cover more than 12 million additional workers nationwide, including nannies, home health care aides, and workers on farms. I spoke with Alex Baptiste of the National Partnership for Women and Families about what the bill means for workers in the age of Me Too.
2: It does expand workplace protections to a large number of of workers who currently don't have those protections. It expands them to workers at small businesses. So, you know, Title VII has a threshold of 15 employees. This would eliminate that threshold and expand those protections to workers at, at smaller businesses, as well as independent contractors, interns, fellows, volunteers, and trainees. So it really is a very far-reaching bill that would touch a lot of workers who, you know, typically don't have those types of protections.
1: I'm just trying to get at some of these climactic factors that might form barriers or deter women from feeling like they are in, you know, a secure enough position to report um, a violation. So talk about how the tipped minimum wage falls into this.
2: And when you're relying on tips for your basically your entire income, you have to put up with a lot more than any other worker would normally be expected to. You have to put up with you know the touchy customer or the demeaning manager because your entire welfare depends on being able to take home those tips and pay your utilities, pay your rent, put food on the table for your family. So by eliminating the tip minimum wage and having tipped, work, tipped workers making the same amount at the at the same minimum wage standards you're now empowering those workers to be able to say you know i don't have to put up this type of behavior anymore my entire livelihood doesn't necessarily depend on it and it empowers them to report harassment without the fear of losing that income
1: that was alex baptiste from the national partnership for women and families the members of the Graduate Employees Organization, GEO, at the University
0: of Illinois at Chicago ended a nearly three-week strike this week and voted overwhelmingly to ratify their new contract, which includes a retroactive raise. I spoke with one of the union's co-presidents about the strike and what they've won.
3: I'm Jeff Shirky. I'm one of the co-presidents of the Graduate Employees Organization, GEO, at UIC, University of Illinois at Chicago, and I'm a fourth-year doctoral candidate in the history department, and uh, I work as a teaching assistant.
0: So you are just getting off of a three-week strike. Um, So I want to go back to the beginning of the strike and tell us what some of the issues that were in contention were.
3: Yeah, the three biggest issues going into the strike were uh, fees. So we have to pay... um, we have to pay up to two thousand dollars every academic year in fees to the university, right. which is basically we see it as a form of wage theft. So yeah, the other issue then is wages, which our right. baseline salary is eighteen thousand dollars. So the two fees and wages really go together because right. we, you know, we only make eighteen thousand, and then we have to pay two thousand back right. um, to the university. Um, so we're left with about sixteen thousand. Before tax, um, and in a city like Chicago, that's just not enough to survive. And then uh, the other issue was sort of non-economic, but it deals with the precarity of our of our of our jobs, which is uh, appointment policies and appointment decisions. So in different departments, you know, we go semester to semester. We don't necessarily know if we're still going to have a job, if we're still going to have a teaching appointment. And in some departments, they um, well, there's no transparency, and so they don't have to be consistent. They can there can be favoritism retaliation discrimination mm-hmm. um, and there's no way we can really prove it because there's no standards that they have to follow. Yeah. So those were the those were the sort of things but on a deeper level when we we went on strike over you know just basic dignity and respect because you know we provide vital labor to the university we're we're professionals we're doing really important good work and we're often treated like we're we're a liability to the university instead of an asset and we're condescended to, and there's this, you know, culture mentality that seems to say, like, oh, graduate school is supposed to be miserable, and you're supposed to, you know, you're supposed to be exploited, and and Uh we're kind of trying to say that, no, that's not how it has to be, that we, you know, we can be, it's supposed to be challenging, but we don't have to be exploited, and we know we're not going to live in luxury, but that doesn't mean we have to live in misery.
0: Yeah, and I think one of the things that we're seeing now is that, you know, as it becomes clear that it's... You know, it's less obvious that your graduate students are going to slide into a tenure track position. This idea that you're paying your dues and then, you know, once you finish, everything will be smooth sailing is kind of slipping away. Right, right. I mean, it's this, there's this idea that oh, this is just a rite of passage and it's a right. hazing ritual, and when we come out of it at the other end, we'll have this cushy tenure track job. But that's not true. When we come out of this, we're still going to be
3: getting exploited, and you know, as adjuncts or, or you know, contingent uh, faculty. Mm-hmm. So. It's a, you know, for, I know for me personally, it's been important while I'm in grad school to be active in the union because this is a part of our, you know, as we're learning to do research, we're learning to teach, you know, we're learning to do these different things when it comes to be, to be an academic, um, but we also have to learn how to, how to organize and how to, how to deal with administrate, university administrations, how to negotiate a contract because these are skills that we're going to have to use going forward in our career after we graduate.
0: Yeah, so when did the strike start, and tell us how it's been for the last few weeks.
3: It started on Tuesday, March 19th, yeah. and um, ended last Friday, April 5th,
2: right.
3: so it, it, it overlapped into spring break. We shut down, basically, the university. Early on, we were just hearing from lots of students and faculty that classes just weren't were happening, because a lot of us, you know, even though we have the title of teaching assistant, a lot of us are the actual instructor for classes, so, and then the... Um, the Tribune, Chicago Tribune, did a uh, FOIA request and found out that at minimum 550 classes were canceled in just the first four days of the strike. So uh, the negotiations continued throughout the strike, and for the first two weeks, the administration refused to change their position on fees. That was kind of the biggest issue, is that we were trying to get some fee relief, to have some fees reduced, or at least frozen, and they, for two weeks, continued to refuse to to change their position on that and we kind of kept holding you know they wanted us to just step down on everything else and capitulate on everything and we told them that wasn't going to happen and finally they started to move on fees they brought the provost into negotiations which it was the first time you know we had been in negotiations for 13 months and it was the first time that a high-ranking official from the administration actually came Uh Uh, and in the meantime the the pickets were really important and really lively and we had, you know, uh, people playing drums from the math department, um, making lots of noise outside the uh, buildings. And a lot of the, the faculty supported us because the faculty have a union as well. Right. The undergraduates were overwhelmingly supportive of us, even though this is affecting their education. But they were angry at the administration. They didn't blame us at all. and They were coming out to our pickets in support. And lots of, uh, you know, Chicago is a union town, so lots of other unions around the city were supporting us and donating to our strike fund and bringing us uh, pizza and donuts every day. And uh, it was a big event on campus, I guess. And uh, we finally, last Thursday night, reached a tentative agreement on the contract. But then when we went to negotiate the terms to settle the strike so that we could go back to work and be able to make up lost hours so that we wouldn't lose pay, on Thursday night they told us they weren't ready to do that. But they wanted us to settle the strike anyway, um, and we said, no, You know, not until we can make sure that we, we're not going to lose our pay. So we stayed out on strike an extra day on Friday, and then last Friday is when we finally made the uh, strike settlement to make sure that people could make up hours so they wouldn't lose their pay.
0: So tell us what's in the deal that you ended up striking.
3: This is our fifth contract since we became a union and it's the the best one that we've we've ever gotten has the most wins we didn't lose anything at all in the uh existing contract you know the the quote-unquote worst that happened was just the status quo but um what we what we did
2: win yeah so i mean we, we 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 saw this as a as an
3: offensive strike, not a defensive strike. Like It wasn't like we were on strike to protect something that they were trying to take away. We were on strike to only gain new things that we didn't have.
2: Right.
3: So one of the biggest things has to do with fees, because like I said, they didn't want to do anything about fees. There's an international student fee, which uh, roughly half of our members are international graduate student workers. And that's a uh, $260 a year. And we got that cut in half. Um, to $130. So it should be $0, but now we're we're halfway there. And then there's another major fee that we pay, uh, which is called the general fee, and it's supposed to increase by $50 per semester next year. And in our agreement, we got it so that they will basically pay us back that money, or they'll pay us back $55 at the beginning of every semester to sort of offset that increase, and it's sort of like an artificial freeze. And we got language saying that if any new fee is created, it will automatically be waived until we can negotiate it in the next uh, the next round of contract negotiations. So it's a first step to getting fees under control And we expect in our next contract, which we'll be negotiating only two years from now, to keep pushing on that. On wages, we got a 14% increase over three years, um, so it's a little over $2,500, which is the biggest raise we've ever gotten in a contract. Um, on appointment policies, we got an agreement that by fall of 2020, departments will be required to implement uh, guidelines explaining how they make their decisions on who gets a job and who doesn't, so there'll be more transparency and consistency. We also, for healthcare, care, we brought down the, the costs that we have to pay for the university health insurance, and then for the very first time, we got the university to cover part of the the cost of dependent care coverage on the uh-huh. health insurance plan. So 20% for the first dependent and then 10% for any additional dependents. When before it was 0% coverage for dependents. And a lot of our members do have have kids or spouses that they wanna put on the uh, healthcare plan. Yeah. And um, non-discrimination, we added two new protected classes to the non-discrimination article of our contract. One is immigration and citizenship status which is important in the sort of, you know, Trump era. Yeah, and sure. then arrest record as well, because people who have a criminal history and they want to go to graduate school you know, later in life, right. they were being told like, oh, don't talk about your past. You know, don't It's sort of, sort of like this don't ask, don't tell kind of policy. Don't disclose to your history you know, even if you're studying, like, criminology or sociology and you're studying mass incarceration and your own personal experience, you know,
2: yeah.
3: is p- part of why you're studying that. So that, that was also added. And also, importantly, we, add, we got language that says the union can't be denied access to orientations at departments. Because every year, we, you know, we have constant turnover and we have to constantly be organizing new members into our union, especially in the you know post-Janus era. Right.
0: Yeah, I mean speaking of Janice, that's, you know, it's impressive to remember that these strikes are still coming off in now harder conditions where, you know, you're you have to do more work just to as you said keep the union alive. Right. Yeah. Janus it kind of was inspiring us because we we understand like if we want people joining the
3: union to be part members of the union, the union has to matter, the contract has to has to be good, you know, we have to fight for a better contract. Um, And we are also inspired by, you know, all the private universities, including here in Chicago, at the University of Chicago and and Loyola, where uh, the graduate employees are are trying to unionize. They voted to unionize, but the administrations are refusing to recognize them and refusing to come to the bargaining table. You know, we were looking at ourselves and saying, well, we already have this right to, you know, we're already a recognized union. We already have the right to, to bargain, so we have to make it count, right? Like these other, you know, other graduate student workers are fighting tooth and nail just to have what we already have. So let's not waste that. You know, let's actually, you know, we have, I mean, we have the legal right to strike in Illinois, which a lot of public sector workers don't have in other states and you know cities. So we wanted to kind of use every tool that we had at our disposal and not let it go to waste to get the best contract we could.
0: Anything else that people should know about strike the contract? Uh
3: well, just the, the faculty now at UIC just last night voted to um, authorize a strike as well. <laughs> so okay. they they could be going on strike sometime later this month. Yeah. And it's just some you know shows how the the administration at the University of Illinois is really they're really terrible. They're really anti-union, and you know, because last year the grad workers at the Urbana-Champaign campus went on strike, and there have been other faculty and and nurses at the UIC hospital. Have been on strike recently, so we're working with all these different, all the different unions. We kind of have a coalition, and we're trying to change the anti-union culture at the University of Illinois.
1: With all the talk on Capitol Hill about getting a hold of Trump's tax returns, you might get the impression that the government is keen on scrutinizing the finances of high-profile, rich taxpayers. Trump's main excuse for not handing his tax information over to Congress is that his tax returns are quote under audit, supposedly. Well, whether or not they are actually under audit, it turns out that trumps an anomaly. You're more likely to get targeted by tax auditors if you are poor. A major new study looking at data from jurisdictions around the country shows that auditing rates are higher in places where there are higher concentrations of poor households, people of color, and others facing economic barriers. According to ProPublica, in counties with the highest audit rates, there were about 11 audits per 1,000 tax returns filed each year, which is more than 40% above the national average. That reveals wide variations in the audit rate from place to place, but also how certain groups of Americans are disproportionately affected by the IRS's policies. The five counties with the highest audit rates are all predominantly African-American, rural counties in the Deep South. The audit rate is also very high in South Texas's largely Hispanic counties and in counties with Native American reservations, such as in South Dakota. Primarily poor white counties, such as those in eastern Kentucky and Appalachia, also have elevated audit rates. So it seems like New York billionaires like Trump are relatively unperturbed on average by the IRS's prying eyes. This is primarily because the IRS tends to target questionable tax filings from recipients of the earned income tax credit. When irregularities are flagged up, these households, which are by definition eligible for the benefit due to their low incomes, face punishing investigations that can drag on for months, delay their much-needed tax returns, and lead to major financial penalties. The IRS has suffered from staffing and funding cuts that prevent it from going after more complex cases of tax fraud involving much richer people and probably much greater volumes of tax fraud. Ironically, the earned income tax credit was designed to reward work for poor households that struggle to get by by giving families a modest income boost each year that ends up lifting many above the poverty line. Yet as Uncle Sam giveth, so Uncle Sam taketh away. Simply claiming this basic entitlement, if you're working poor these days, can put you at risk of a legal investigation. All the while, the wealthy are getting away with massive abuses of the tax system, including countless tax breaks and loopholes that are, unfortunately, perfectly legal and let taxpayers and corporations avoid paying their fair share. Once again, the demographics of who gets audited shows that it costs more to be poor in this country than to be wealthy. New York
0: City's universal pre-K program is probably Mayor Bill de Blasio's signature achievement, something that was rolled out early that has successfully expanded early childhood education and made thousands of parents' lives easier. But it's not without its hiccups, and so New York's pre-K teachers could be some of the latest educators to go on strike come May. AFSME District Council 1707 represents about 8,000 teachers in community-run preschools and daycare centers who are paid less than the pre-K teachers who work in the public schools and are members of the United Federation of Teachers. I wrote about this problem when the program was rolled out back in 2014, and it has yet to be rectified. Because de Blasio was able to get his signature program, but not able to get the tax hike that he wanted to pass to pay for it through the state legislature, the money had to be squeezed from other parts of the budget, and the programs were cobbled together at public schools, charter schools, and the community based early childhood centers, some of which are faith based. Some of the teachers at these community centers have been members of DC 1707 for years, but their salaries don't come close to those of the public school teachers. One teacher told Chalkbeat that she sometimes skips lunch to make ends meet. She makes just over $15 an hour after a decade in the classroom. This divide shows up again and again in education. Those who teach younger children are stereotyped as babysitters rather than educators whose skills are less important. The two-tier system between the public school pre-K programs and the community-based centers means that children in what is supposed to be the same program are being taught by people in wildly different working conditions. The strike vote across two locals of DC 1707 was taken in March and would potentially be a blot on de Blasio's record as he continues to consider joining the ridiculously crowded 2020 presidential primary field. Not that we needed any more candidates. But this would also be a chance for teachers who too often find themselves treated as the bottom rung of the educational ladder to demonstrate the value and importance of their work. We will, of course, follow up on this story as a potential strike date gets closer. Today, we're talking video games, the work that goes into making them, promoting them, modifying them, and even playing them. The history of the games industry is laid out in a new book, Marks at the Arcade by Jamie Woodcock, out now from Haymarket Books. And Jamie joined us to talk about his book, the organizing that's going on now in the games industry, and much more. So in your book, you take on video games as a site of labor and culture, as an industry that's worth billions of dollars. Why is it important to think about games as a place where work happens, where profits are made, where class struggle happens?
4: The kind of main reason is, you know, I, I, in the book, I kind of reflect back on when I first played video games as a, as a kid. And these were kind of a niche product. They required a lot of expertise to get working. You know, now the video games industry is, is the biggest cultural industry in many ways. You know, the biggest cultural commodities today are video games and so we should be interested in them you know as the left as marxists we should be interested in phenomena that people spend time and money uh, and significant parts of their lives kind of undertaking Uh, and i think you know one of the things i try to do in the book is to explain what has happened when people haven't been interested in them you know the kind of things that have gone wrong because you know many of these communities have established and grown uh without interventions from the left so I think you know it's kind of too late to say why should we be interested the reason now is you know we really should be interested in these things
1: yeah and we will
0: get into some of those questions of communities later but I want to talk about in your book and in the site notes from below where you're an editor you use the workers inquiry as a methodology and so for our listeners who aren't familiar with this term what is it and why is it a useful method for learning about work and also for organizing workers
4: so workers' inquiry as, a, as, an, as an approach or as a method is inspired by something Marx wrote later in his life, which was a, a set of questions that he wanted to send out to factory workers. Now, on its own, sending out questions isn't the most interesting thing, but really what he was interested in was trying to get workers to describe their own conditions. And so we see workers' inquiry as an approach that is about producing knowledge about work, but is also a politicising process. Right. So it's about the production of knowledge and organising at the same time. And, you know, luckily for the book, uh, I mean, if people are familiar, there's the Assassin's Creed games. In one of them, you actually meet Marx. um, And it kind of presents a very different version of Workers' Inquiry. Marx tries to get the Assassins to steal factory records. Now, in reality, You know, Marx didn't have assassins that he paid to do this, but he he read factory reports. But it would be cool if he did. It would be very cool. (laughs) And so I kind of used that as a hook in the book to say, well, what would a workers' inquiry look like in the video games industry? Uh, And I first wrote something in, in, I think, 2015, where I'd been working with a couple of people who make video games. And we kind of sketched out what an inquiry might look like. And we said, well, you know, there's these issues of, like, overwork, uh, of sexism in the industry. These could provide the basis for organising. But we said at the time we're like it we're not you know, things are not there yet. Yeah. And so it was really nice over the last year and so like looking back at that and going, well, you know, things have changed a huge amount since 2015. Mm-hmm, yeah. And I think inquiry can help us to unpick like why that happened and the direction it goes in.
0: So let's talk a little bit about the different kinds of labor that make up games, because you have everything from like the physical production to programming to promotions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so talk a little bit about the sort of production chain of uh Making games.
4: So I think it's, you know, the production chain is, is, is huge. And I think a really good example to, to think through what this means is to think of Grand Theft Auto, the latest one, which is the the biggest selling media product of, of all time. And if we think about the kinds of labor that went into it, like ostensibly it was made in the UK. It's made in Edinburgh. Uh, it's obviously not made in Edinburgh. You know, there's all kinds of labor that go into it from elsewhere. Um, so these big studios, you know, they have a studio in Edinburgh. They have studios in the US. They have studios across the world. They subcontract parts of the development out to you know places like Vietnam or India, and so you have this huge chain of software development, but also artists, sound design, storytelling. You know all of these aspects, but none of this could happen without you know labor happening predominantly in the global south. The production of hardware, uh, you know the plastic cases, uh, the mining of coltan these huge chains of production networks that bring in both kind of material labor and more immaterial labor. And so in a a sense, video games are like a, a glimpse of how production has changed.
0: You write about the idea of play in the context of industrial capitalism, show how that's existed in tension with capitalism since it's not productive. But of course, games do involve work and even the things, the parts of the work that are supposed to be fun are still work. So why is it important to think about games as both a form of work and a form of play?
4: So I think this goes to the root of, uh, of where the video games industry came from. Yeah. Um, is at its core, there is a kind of tension that has emerged over and over again inside of video games. Of games being made as a kind of form of resistance, mm-hmm. of breaking systems and using them for something else. And this is where the first video games came from is people who were meant to be you know plotting mutually assured destruction and plotting <laughs> missile powers you know this kind of horrible but also incredibly banal activity yeah. of like doing the logistics of uh, of nuclear war and instead saying well mo- why couldn't we use this technology to do something much more interesting and it was really nice when I was writing the book um, so my dad is a is a computer scientist yeah. uh, and I was talking to him about some of the, the earlier stuff you know, to make sure I was kind of talking about computer systems in the right way and he said oh i did this yeah you know i was meant to be making industrial calendars and instead we like found a way to make a moonlander game because it was like way more fun and so it's really nice when you find that these you know you have a kind of connection to these things but that's something that continues over and over again it's like different uh, different points video games are kind of commodified and brought back in and then people find a way to to change a game to do something different and i think it's really important when we think about the kind of resistance that's happening today mm-hmm. to see that there has been resistance throughout the whole history of video games. This kind of play, resistance, capture dynamic is always present.
0: Yeah, and you use the term playbore to talk about um, this process, but specifically in the context of modifying games, which is done by people who play them, but then is increasingly captured by games companies and turned also to a profit.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the, the idea of how free labor enters into these things i think is always quite important and i think you know even within the paid labor of the video games industry we can see the motivation of you know passion people's passions are brought into it so they work longer hours and so on but also many games would be terrible if we were the only one playing them so these kind of large online games our play becomes a constituent part of the product in a way Um, and of course we're not paid for The hours we spend playing yeah Yeah, you know that would be that would be very different uh,
0: wages for warcraft (laughs) (laughs)
4: Um, but i think it's about seeing that you know the division between like paid time and things that we do unpaid is increasingly blurred and inside the video games industry you know the number of people who make things for free you know maybe as a portfolio to hope to get into the industry or maybe just because they they really enjoy it is a kind of is something that the industry has tried to mobilize over and over again You know, how can we get people to do things for free? Because they don't have the same passion, their interest is making huge amounts of money.
0: Right, and so in that space, you write a lot about like crunch as a problem for the programmers in particular, who are expected to just put in these incredibly long hours while working on the games, and that this is just kind of figured into how the industry functions at this point, even if it's not necessarily all that efficient.
4: You know, this is one of the things that, you know, whoever uh, you talk to in the industry, this normalization of long hours is kind of astonishing. Yeah. Uh, that everybody has yeah. been through this process. Yeah. And I think what we have to be clear about is it's a it's a management failure.
2: Right.
4: Like people have contracts that have a certain number of hours. In
0: uh, some countries where you have contracts. Yes, in, in countries <laughs> where you have
4: uh, have proper contracts. But, you yeah. know, in a video games company, right. they have an expectation of how much people can work. Yeah. They then have to work out how much work goes into the game. Right. I think the challenge of it is, you know, a lot of this work is difficult to measure. And so the reality is managers say, well, you know, if we can't measure it, we can just make workers make up the time towards the end. But this is, you know, this is something that Marx talks about, you know, this is a struggle over the length of the working day. Um, And it's about extracting more value from people who work in the video games industry. So it's like an old story in some ways.
0: Yeah, when I was talking to the the games workers folks in London, I was really struck by the way they all had these stories, even though I was talking to people who had gone to school in three different countries. They all had stories about the places where they went to school, normalizing these very long hours and sort of building these expectations into them from the beginning, that it's very competitive and it's very difficult and you're going to work very long hours and that's just how it is in order to, you know, make it in this
4: industry. Yeah, and I think this goes back to what I was saying about the kind of mobilization of passion. This is something where, you know, many of these workers in the video games industry could go and work in a broader tech industry. They could earn more, but they wouldn't be getting to do what they're truly passionate about, which is being involved in this industry. And so this is taken advantage of almost uniformly across the industry to say, don't you want this game to be good? You know, you'll put in the 90 hours or the 100 hours a week. Uh, And the reality is, you know, people are then not, compensated for it you know that then happens again the next time around and there's a story that a game worker told me which i think is it kind of summarizes this in lots of ways Worked these 90 hour weeks and so on and then at some point the managers were like we're going to cancel the game like it's never going to come to law we actually we've decided it's not going to make enough money and so they just stopped the production and this person had literally poured their life into into making it and a decision at the top came and it was over
0: in talking about, I mean, and there are so many ways that we can talk about gender issues in, in the games industry, but one of them, since we're talking about long hours, is obviously like this kind of working 100-hour weeks is, is designed for sort of young, presumably male workers who have somebody else doing the domestic labor at home.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, these kind of long hours are only possible because either you have no caring responsibilities or you have somebody else who's prepared to take up those caring responsibilities. And... You know, this has been going on for a long time in the industry and the the EA spouse letter is, you know, somebody who wrote an anonymous letter about being a spouse of an EA worker and talking about the incredibly long hours, the effect it had on the family life and the relationship and so on. And what was interesting is at the time, there was a kind of awakening in the industry of like, this is bad and it has to stop and so on. And then it just carried on as normal. So this has become (laughs) a kind of core part of how the industry is organized. But I think it's also, you know, there are many reasons why sexism is rife inside the industry and crunch is definitely one of them because it reinforces it makes it harder for women to enter the industry right. and then because there are less women it's harder for women to enter the industry so it's easier to continue these practices and so on
0: and then that in turn interacts with the perception that games are for men and then it just continues producing games for men yeah. and exactly. so that ends up affecting what is produced
4: yeah and i think that this is the problem with it is there's not just one reason why the video games industry has these problems. And so therefore, it's very difficult to think of like, what is the one solution? And so, you know, for example, think about like, why was Game Boy called Game Boy? You know, why was it gendered? Um, And I think there's also like the marketing strategies that were pushed because of perceptions about who would play these things. And then because more young men played video games, it then makes more sense to market them to that sector. And so I think, you know, somebody, you know, asked me the other day, like, what do you think the solution is to this? And I think, you know, there isn't one solution. But people being organized in the industry is a massive step towards thinking how these things could be changed.
0: Yeah. And I was struck again by the people who were working in the industry who kept saying, you know, the lack of diversity in the issue in the industry was a reason that they wanted to organize. So I guess we have to talk about Gamergate in this context, because when we're talking about games, potential as a space for radical politics, we have to look at the reactionary politics that came out of that. And like, at this point, we're seeing explicitly the roots of the alt-right now in that space.
4: Yeah, and I think you know when we talk about uh, politics within games communities, I think sometimes there's a risk to see these as things that have developed in a particular way, yeah. just kind of by accident, or it's just happened that they've become right-wing. right wing. And I think that's a massive misreading of the situation. You know, there's some some things you can read by Steve Bannon talking about, you know, these being communities ripe for radicalizing towards the the far right. Yeah. He talks about. You know, young men who are disenfranchised, who, you know, are looking for, for things to get involved with. And so there was an active push by the, by the far right to politicize these communities. And I think in many cases, this happens without the games companies who are responsible for the creation of these communities, just not curating them, not doing anything about them. And so letting them develop in, a, uh, in an incredibly reactionary way. Uh, and then, you know, you, you have some people on the left saying, oh, how did this happen? Well, you know, in any of these kind of terrains, if we do nothing, you know, they will develop in certain ways.
0: On that note, I want to talk a little bit about people who have made some sort of explicitly political games that had aims to use games as like a way to expose labor issues or to, um, I'm thinking of like how many years ago it was that game Hey Baby that was supposed to give men the experience of street harassment but how that has worked um successes on that front anything that you see potential in there
4: so i think um when we think about political games there are really two kinds there are like political games like a capital p that are like telling you about politics and i think you know there's some use in those as kind of you know propagandist kinds of things but the ones I'm much more interested in are, are games that have a kind of political theme or a political, you know, process that runs through them. Yeah. So I'm thinking here. I don't know if this is the one you meant, but like Phone Story, yeah. uh, by Moll Industria, which, you know, uses game dynamics to get people thinking about their role within capitalism and so on. And I think, you know, revolutionaries and activists of uh, throughout history have always used dominant forms of media. contest things and to put forward different ideas and i think that's what's quite exciting about an interactive medium is you can experience these things in a slightly different way so one of my favorite political games is one that was featured in the financial times of all places which is about being an uber driver yeah and you know not to spoil the the story but you basically can't make any money as an uber driver but rather than just telling you that you play through it and you realize you see the dynamics of what it's like to be an uber driver which i think is a really good tool for thinking through these things
0: some of our listeners are probably not aware that um, professional competitive video gaming is a thing so esports is now a thing that is also a quite profitable industry for some people also has some labor issues
4: yeah i mean So I think, yeah, for people who don't know that this is a thing, it it can be quite a kind of uh, shock to realise that people can play video games and can make millions of dollars a year doing this. And I think, you know, in a sense, to make sense of why that's happened, you also have to make sense of the growth of video games more broadly. Because having people at the very top of their game, as it were, become a focus for bigger communities and so esports becomes a huge marketing tool for different games if you can have these global competitions that you know some of them have a million people watch the finals it's about the growth and the maturing of this culture into something where playing the game isn't the only thing that people want to do they also want to watch other people play Um, but there are huge labor issues because in general these are young people you know often signing a contract for the first time who are signing a contract with multinational companies with billions of dollars of revenue with very talented lawyers who are who are writing things in and there's a huge huge opportunity for exploitation of, uh, of these people who are often in quite vulnerable positions and much like many traditional sports stars have a very short period in which they're going to be successful yeah. and so there's a kind of meta competition that happens in esports if we can kind of use that analogy of like who wins and loses from it and at the moment what it looks like big advertisers and big publishers are the ones who are going to make serious serious money from it as a phenomenon
0: and the people who are playing it are just going to get carpal tunnel yeah
4: they're going to get carpal tunnel (laughs) and then it's the question of like what do you do after it like in other sports there are like career paths for people after they've been a professional yeah there are so few of those in video games
0: because as you were kind of talking about games are interactive they're immersive they sort of create an alternative reality does that automatically sort of end up taking on the the characteristics of the world that produced it? You know, where even in a game where you meet Marx, he's hiring some assassins to steal something. Or is it possible in, like we were talking about some of these political games, a way to imagine different worlds and alternatives to capitalism, maybe?
4: Yeah, so I think, you know, one of the quotes that I start uh, the book with is a Stuart Hall quote about this. And I think... You know, we have to see that, of course, the material relations in society affects the kind of culture that we have, um, but it's not determined in a one-way relationship. Uh, and I think Stuart Hall in particular is, is really good about why we should be concerned with culture as a terrain that, on which ideas battle each other out. Yeah. And so I think in a sense, my understanding of, of video games is similar to thinking about like older cultural forms of science fiction is like these are spaces that could allow us to imagine alternative futures different ways of being or so on but equally they can be a space where we can escape from the drudgery of work for a, an evening and we can do something you know some kind of power fantasy of saving the world or of exploring another place or whatever is they don't the, the politicization of video games doesn't mean they all have to have political themes about changing yeah. the world. Yeah. They can also just be a space to like get away from how horrible and boring capitalism is just for like a, a yeah. bit of time. And both have a value, I think.
0: Yeah, I mean, back to the... You're talking about the way that they were produced as sort of anti-work within the military industrial complex. But, you know, um, okay, so we want to get to the fun stuff, which is um, tell us about the current state of labor organizing among game workers um, and its connections to the sort of broader politicization of tech workers in recent years.
4: Yeah, so I think, you know, this is really the reason that I wrote the book. Yeah. Um, is I kind of, as I said earlier, I wrote this thing uh, in 2015 about, like, could uh, could organizing happen in the video games industry? And then when it started happening, that was when I thought, you know, actually, like now is the time to write the book. This is, is kind of worth doing and so on. And so we've just passed the year anniversary of, uh, of, of the organizing in the video games industry, um, which is quite different to lots of other organizing projects. Is there was this kind of moment at a conference where people tried to discuss organizing. It was shut down. And as a result, now everybody in the industry knows that the bosses don't like unions. It's so like, maybe they're a good thing. Maybe they're like <laughs> worth getting involved in. And so you have this unorganized industry where no one's ever been in a union before, mostly, who now all know that unions are something they're interested in, which is the most amazing terrain to begin organizing on, um, which is really exciting. Yeah.
0: One of the things, too, is that like these games companies themselves are are sort of multinational. And so you have workers in Canada working with workers in the UK, working with workers in India. So how does that sort of make organizing more difficult, but also make it more exciting, potentially?
4: So I think it does throw up challenges. Uh, And I think one of the interesting things at the moment is, although there's an international network, uh, so Game Workers Unite is about people moving towards organizing, Uh, The only places where a union has been formed are France and the UK. And I'm sure, you know, and I'm sure you're much better equipped to answer this, that it would be harder in the US uh, to establish a a kind of independent union and and start organising and so on. And so there are all these different contexts where people need to think about what organising means. But it also means they can share experiences across borders in a way that is really, really exciting. And so each of these different terrains, you know, organising in India is very different to the US. Which is very different to the UK, um, but it opens up huge possibilities. I think.
0: Yeah. So tell us about the union in the UK. Um,
4: so I first met uh, the GWU uh, UK uh, group when it was one person. Um, so I saw what was happening at this this conference last year, and I, I thought, you know, I, I do workers' inquiry type research. You know i i have a kind of interest in this i'll reach out and see if there's anything i can do to help and so it's been the most amazing experience watching them grow from one person uh to having their first meeting of like three or four to having the first open meeting to formalizing their network to now forming a branch of uh of the iwgb which is the independent workers union of great britain and just watching how much they've learned has been an incredibly inspiring process. And I think it puts to rest this idea of, you know, unorganized industries, you know, people don't know what they're doing, they don't want to do it, you know, there are too many challenges. Is actually given the space, these workers have figured out what unionizing means to them in a really inspiring way.
0: Yeah, so tell us a little bit in that context about IWGB, some of the other workers that are organized with IWGB, and how this is broadly sort of organising the unorganizable in a lot of ways.
4: So, so I'm a, uh, a member of, uh, of IWGB, um, and it has its roots as uh, a branch of Latin American cleaners around universities uh, in central London. And it's kind of grown to take on a series of different groups of workers who either haven't organised before or have been let down by the mainstream trade union movement and not organised. Um, so this includes foster care workers now, uh, Uber drivers, delivery uh, riders, couriers, um, self-employed electricians—a yeah. um, whole number of what at first glance look like a very disparate group of workers—but yeah. also, you know, people who are trying to organise in new ways or are struggling with employment law and so on. Yeah. And so, for the game workers, there were a number of options for them. You know, they could join a mainstream trade union, yeah. where they would probably be swallowed up they probably wouldn't have much freedom to, to run their own campaigns or whatever. Yeah. Or they could form their own union, which in the UK is an expensive and legally kind of burdensome thing to do. Yeah. Or they could join this small union as an autonomous branch right. and be given the freedom to take control of their campaigns. And I think what's interesting is when you talk to young these young workers who are experimenting with trade unionism, to them it makes total sense that they should have democratic control over their union, right. that it should be participatory... Because they haven't been to these experiences of less good unions.
0: <laughs> <laughs> they have no experience of business unionism. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so how are they sort of interacting with some of these other workers in
4: IWGB? They're learning a lot from, from different groups of workers. Our union in the UK has a kind of uh, a reputation for vibrant demonstrations, for, for taking action, which I think for them has been really positive to see and i think it's interesting to put these different groups of workers into a conversation with each other obviously the game workers have a different set of grievances and uh, and problems and so on but they can see a lot of similarities with with other groups of workers and so what we've made a big effort to do is to you know to invite them to the strikes at university of london or the uber driver strike protests and to start that kind of learning process because i think it'll be uh, it, it's, it's very useful for both both sets of people, I think.
0: I want to wrap up by talking about strikes in the game industry. And so there has been a couple, right?
4: Yeah, there was a strike in France, mm-hmm. which, yeah, is because they have this union that's existed before. But in terms of formal strikes, there have been very few.
0: Yeah. Um, and there was a voice actors yes. strike, right? Also that... Um, And that goes back to the sort of long-standing Hollywood unions, right? They're in,
2: are they SAG after? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, And so, how did that? Those sort of seeing those things happen, did they have any effects on the other workers in the industry?
4: Yeah, I think so. I mean, the voice actors. um, I guess that one of the difficulties is developers, programmers, and so on have relatively little interaction with the voice actors in person. They deal with what's brought into them. Uh, but I think it helps to see other groups of workers who've organised, and I think another thing that's worth thinking about is the unionisation of uh, of kind of new media of you know games websites and, and and magazines and so on. I think has really fed into this too, um, because the games press covers union stuff really positively because yes. they're now in unions, so it <laughs> kind of has this nice uh, follow on. But in terms of what, what really struck me when I met the first person of uh, GWU in the UK is he talked about his studio like a factory. Um, And so when I said to him, like, what would action look like in your workplace? He said, well, you know, if the artists stop making assets, I can't do anything. Or like, you know, if one other part of the process stops, we all have to work with each other constantly. So he says, I'm always over at the artist's desk talking to them. And then I go over somewhere else. And it means that the withdrawal of labor has a huge potential in the video games industry. It does shut things down.
0: Particularly if you're in crunch time and uh, they really want that game out.
4: Exactly. And I think there are similarities here with Hollywood too. Is that release cycle means, you know, if you miss a holiday season release, the game just isn't going to make money. People will buy another title. And so structurally, these workers have a huge amount of leverage if they decide to not work 100 hours a week at the end or if the artists decide to stop you know, stop finishing things to to go into the game. So there's yeah. huge potential.
0: Yeah, I mean, it seems like there's even just huge potential for, like, work-to-rule actions and just being like, nope, sorry, I'm plucking out after eight hours or whatever.
4: Yeah, and I think this is one of the things that's exciting about it, organising, is, like, you know, what they're not talking about is we need to renegotiate a contract with an above-inflation pay rise, yeah. or, you know, kind of the little bits around the margins. Is what they're really talking about, you know, is is crunch... And I guess kind of equity, so not just sexism, but all kinds of discrimination. And these are big questions for a trade union to take on. Um, And really what the questions are about, are about why don't we have more control over our work? So like, why do we not have a say about when we work, how much we work, what we do when we work, who we work with? And that's what I find really exciting about this is, you know, these workers are experimenting with a new way to organize. But the questions they're taking on are, are really quite big questions.
0: You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And
1: that was Jamie Woodcock, author of Marks at the Arcade on Haymarket Books. And now it's time for. I wish I'd written that, where we talk about the pieces that we read and liked and wish we could have written but did not. My pick for this episode is Amazon Says It's a Leader on Fighting Climate Change, 5,000 Employees Disagree by Alex Campbell in Vox. So Amazon is once again in the news, but this time, oddly, it's not about its monopoly power as an online retailer or its monstrous real estate deals in New York or or Jeff Bezos' latest sexting scandal. It's actually about the environment, something you'd expect a company with a name like Amazon to at least pay some lip service to, and they have. The company recently announced that it was taking steps to address its carbon footprint. It's rolled out plans for solar farms at its facilities, as well as thermal heat recapturing technology at its plants. It's launched a big wind farm in Texas. But despite being a top corporate renewable energy consumer, Vox reports that, as as one of the top five most valuable companies nationwide, Amazon has a lot of fat to trim when it comes to going on a carbon diet. Thousands of Amazon employees have sent a letter to corporate executives with demands for climate justice, which reflects many of the principles undergirding the Green New Deal. First, the employees call out Amazon's gargantuan delivery transportation system, which relies on diesel-powered trucks. These are heavily polluting in terms of both carbon emissions and the local smog that it deposits, it's in the air, so Amazon's vehicle fleet is actively contributing to one of the major sources of global warming around the world, while also damaging public health in the communities surrounding its delivery routes. The workers who wrote the letter, including lower-level white-collar tech workers, noted that while Amazon does have a plan to reduce its shipping-related carbon emissions, it's not actually reducing reliance on fossil fuels per se, rather it's relying on the fuzzy math of carbon offsets. This entails buying environmental credits that supposedly compensate for Amazon's environmentally damaging practices. The employees had a problem with this offsetting idea because it tends to work sort of like indulgences for polluters, and it can have some pretty nasty consequences around the world. They write, quote, offsets can entail forest management policies that displace indigenous communities, and they do nothing to reduce our diesel pollution, which disproportionately harms communities of color, unquote. The letter is just one example of a growing movement of shareholder activism in corporations aimed at pushing businesses to adopt more sustainable practices. The letter to Amazon's corporate brass comes from workers who have some shares in the company. In many cases, it was awarded to them as compensation. It builds upon a rising tide of fossil fuel divestment campaigns at campuses, in governments, and on corporate boards, and other pressure campaigns that try to get companies to address their pollution and environmental harms by mobilizing the workers inside of these corporations. So far, activists have forced more than 1,000 institutions to divest from fossil fuels, though only a tiny percentage of these have been for-profit corporations. The Amazon workers' letter shows another sign that agitation is coming from inside the ranks of megacorporations. Now, many of the worker activists understand that they've been given a rare bit of leverage through grants of stock as compensation. And although such measures are typically designed as a way to curry the loyalty of workers and give them a sense that they're owning the company and sharing in the company's prosperity, it can also give workers a greater collective influence on some executive decisions. Through raising resolutions and petitioning around certain political issues issues within the corporation. Given Amazon's reputation for subjecting workers to exhausting, degrading corporate cultures, it's nice to see that at least some of the employees aren't too mired in bitterness and fear to engage in positive internal activism. As stockholders, employees also have leverage as a bridge to the public, serving as both whistleblowers and provocateurs to the higher-ups. This latest employee letter follows an earlier letter that raised climate change issues to the board, and it brings the pressure up just another notch coming in the wake of the Green New Deal resolution in Congress. Though it's not clear what kind of critical mass Amazon really needs to be compelled to change its business model, the letter shows that behind the slick veneer of Amazon, there's room for disruption inside of Silicon Valley which is famously imperialistic in its business deals but often dresses itself in the utopian visionary jargon that abounds across the industry's upper echelons. The letter outlines major weaknesses in Amazon's vague promises to move toward net-zero emissions someday, somehow. The letter calls on Amazon to commit to a real timeline, public goals and timelines consistent with science and the UN IPCC report that demands that emissions be reduced to zero by 2050. And importantly, they're pushing to build climate justice into the company's climate agenda. They argue, quote, the pollution we generate is not equally distributed and climate impact will be felt first and hardest by black, indigenous, and other communities of color, particularly in the global South we must prioritize our pollution reduction in these communities, unquote. And they demand that the company apply the same ethical principles toward addressing inequality in its own labor force. This means, quote, fair treatment of all employees during climate disruptions and extreme weather events, and unsafe or inaccessible workplaces should not be a reason to withhold pay, terminate, or otherwise penalize employees, including hourly and contract workers, unquote. So this message might not change Bezos's mind about anything in the immediate term, but it does Highlight how a small group of workers in a massive corporation can still find a way to make their voices heard, not just by holding their multinational bosses to account for failing to live up to their brand image, but by trying to reshape the rules of the corporate culture to make their workplaces fairer, more democratic and more responsive to the needs of labor and the community. Granted, Amazon still is a gigantic evil corporation, but hey, if you're a cog in the corporate machine, you might as well seize every chance you can get to be the squeaky wheel in the name of the greater good. This
0: week's ARG comes to you from our friends at the Strike Wave newsletter, a new project of a group of organizers, writers, and thinkers about the labor movement who are putting together Labor News Weekly, right in your inbox. I am a fan of the project in general and of this piece in particular, titled Labor Has Opposed Taft Hartley for Decades, Here's Why It's Time to Repeal It by C.M. Lewis. Taft-Hartley, more properly known as the Labor Management Relations Act of 1947, was the first big pushback on the gains that organized labor had made in the U.S. in the New Deal era, and it has wound up a stumbling block for so many reasons for all the decades since. As Lewis writes, in passing the Taft Hartley Act, quote, Congress, over the vocal objection of working Americans, set in motion a generations long offensive by American employers against labor's hard won gains for American workers. Taft Hartley has cast a long shadow over American labor relations, and one which stretches to our present moment a moment in which less than 7% of private sector workers belong to a union and organized labor is in a fight for its life. End quote. So what does the act do? Well, it cracked down hard and fast on the ways that labor was exercising its power, through the strike mostly, under the guise of, quote, fairness to employers. As Lewis writes, quote, for the first time, employer free speech, in reality, the right to utilize their bully pulpit to oppose unionization, entered into law. Unfair labor practices, once restricted to employers, were extended to workers as well. The act banned secondary strikes and boycotts, banned closed shops, which allowed significant union control over hiring, removed union eligibility for supervisors like foremen, allowed the president to halt strikes deemed to be harmful to national interest, sharply restricted union campaign political And required all Union officers to file affidavits stating that they did not support and were not affiliated with the Communist Party. In other words, the Republican Congress took one look at the political power displayed by organized labor and working Americans in the post-war strike wave and kneecapped it. End quote. And no one since, not any of the supposedly pro-labor presidents elected with a bunch of union dollars and votes, has bothered trying to get rid of it. Instead, case law and further legal restrictions have built on its precedent, hemming unions in more and more over the years until we've reached the point that we're at now. Even Bernie Sanders' Workplace Democracy Act, which is a serious improvement over the last attempt at reform, the 2009 failed Employee Free Choice Act, doesn't fully repeal it. Lewis, importantly, points out, quote, the damage caused by Taft-Hartley won't be fully undone by repeal. Employer free speech is entered into constitutional law, and in many states, the concept of Taft-Hartley have been codified into public sector labor relations. The bosses can be expected to fight repeal, and well after repeal, with every weapon in their arsenal, they fought hard against far less. They realize the stakes presented by strengthening organized labor's ability to fight for American workers. In some ways, some of the evils are already out of Pandora's box, end quote. And so even repealing Taft-Hartley won't be remotely enough to reverse union decline. As Lewis notes, we need to expand organizing rights to domestic and agricultural workers left out of the right to organize in the first place. But getting rid of Taft-Hartley would be a big step in the right direction. That is all we have time for this week. Stay tuned for more on teacher strikes, labor laws past, present, and future, and more from the class war. Thank you again to Dissent for hosting us and to Natasha Lewis for editing us and making us sound good every single week. Thanks to you for listening, and even more thanks to you if you've rated us on iTunes, shared us with your friends, promoted us on Twitter or Facebook, or generally propagandized on our behalf. And an extra special thanks to our belabored sustaining members. Just $5 a month gets you an excellent belabored tote bag, and we also have some fabulous Descent t-shirts if you sign up to be a Solidarity subscriber to the magazine. You can find out more about all of that at DescentMagazine.org slash belabored dash membership or about our solidarity subscription program and t-shirts at descentmagazineorg slash solidarity you can as always email us at belabored at if you are a pre-k teacher or a video game programmer a graduate employee or a voice actor or if you too would like to repeal taft hartley you can tweet at us too at hashtag belabored we'll be back in two weeks solidarity You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.